Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. This is part two of my chat with Tim. Part one is episode 321. In part two, we cover Kangaroo 89, a huge military exercise with the entire Australian army using an area the size of Western Europe. Tim was also part of an exchange program with the British Army and he describes his experiences there and the advantages and disadvantages between Leopard 1 and the British Challenger 1 tank. Tim also worked with the Bundeswehr where he had a fascinating encounter with a former East German tank commander. I'm delighted to welcome Tim to our Cold War conversation. In 89 there was a big exercise, Kangaroo 89 really original with with the names of your exercises in Australia. oh yeah yeah they, yeah they, they they put a lot of thought into that yeah yeah K- kangaroo 89 was was a whopper it was basically the entire australian army was was rolled out to fight a Khmerian insurgency um that had you know decided to disrupt the australian north and um so we we were we sent a tank squadron up to the up to the Northern Territory, and we operated around um, the Catherine region up in the top end. But um, that exercise ran from the east coast of Australia all the way to the west coast, like an exercise area literally as big as Western Europe. And and on that exercise, our tanks, we, we would have done thousands of kilometres, thousands. And like uh, uh, I remember we... We were in defence of Tyndall RAAF base, you know, the F-18s and the F-111s that we had up based up there. And uh, Our Khmerian enemy was consisted of um, guys from our special air service, um, some, you know, some invited US special forces guys and our, our parachute battalion, the 3rd Third, Third Battalion Royal Australian Regiment, and they were... They were re-rolled for that exercise as um, as the Khmerian insurgents, and they kept us on our toes. Um, but once once they were identified, I think that that you know the tank regiment performed really well there because the speed that we could we could move and bring overwhelming combat power, you know, to a pinned enemy. Um, you know, like they would all of a sudden they'd be trapped in a town because we were roadblocking all around it and then moving in on them. So it was it was pretty successful. I got I got one story about that the SAS. Apparently, they were. I heard years later that from a guy that I did a course with, one of our SAS guys, 
And he said, oh, you're a tanky. Were you on Kangaroo 89? I said, yeah, I was. And he goes, you bastards ran over my motorbike. And I said, what are you talking about? And, and he goes, well, I was watching watching you guys in, in your hide, in your harbour, you know, and I was watching you for a couple of days. And next thing you all started up and you just roared off and one of you drove straight over my motorbike, which was all camouflaged by cam, cam nets and stuff. And and he goes, I had to walk for miles to get out of there. <laughs> he goes, I thought you were going to run me over. Yeah, and I've got to say, none of us ever saw an SAS surveilling us, so they, they're pretty good at their skills, those guys. But, yeah, they, they had to ride off a motorbike because a tank drove over it. Brilliant, brilliant. You, just describing that exercise area as the size of Western Europe, I'm just thinking that the whole logistics and resupply um in an environment like that must be a real challenge how, how was that dealt with you know keeping fuel up to the tanks and, and ammunition is 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 obviously going to be a logistical challenge um so i i remember they solved it in a, in a number of ways there um we had our own internal um, resupply vehicles the old m548 the we called them the tilly the track load carrier based on the m113 chassis like a like a pickup truck and and they they had a the big um, rubber bladders full of diesel, and they would come to us in all sorts of terrains and environments, and so they would ferry back, fill up at big fuel depots, and then you know under escort they would come to us in the night and refuel. Um, other ways that we I remember on on one particular movement near Catherine on on the way to the town of Mataranka, about I don't know how far it is from Catherine, maybe 120 k's. We, we had the squadron on a road and we all filed through a service station, you know, like a petrol station. And yeah. I, I remember seeing the operator, you know, he's going, how much diesel do you want? <laughs> and his eyes were nearly popping out of his head. Yeah, you know, we, we literally drove to a fuel station and filled up and left that place empty. Wow. So how, how many gallon could a, could a leopard take? Um. You, you got me with gallons. Yeah, I'm on the metric system. So, yeah, we had we carried uh, 985 litres of, of diesel, which which would give you about 600 kilometre range on the road. So, you know, it was pretty economical for a tank, you know, only weighed 42 tonnes um, combat laden. So it, it had a massive power-to-weight ratio and that, that ZF transmission gave it some speed and economy. So, yeah, yeah, 985 litres. You know, it was kind of a a chargeable offence to ever let your tank run down on fuel. So we we, uh, we used to top up all the time, you know. It wasn't a good feeling to even run one of your fuel tanks down. So we we ran with two fuel tanks, a left and a right, and as soon as you saw the – the red fuel light coming on, you'd, we'd switch over to the other one. That was pretty, you know, that was a pretty rare occurrence when you'd emptied one tank. They kept the fuel up to us each night, usually. Um, I mean, we, we spoke earlier about Australia and its history of being a expeditionary force, and uh, I think you, you also mentioned that post-Vietnam there was much less of an appetite to get involved in, in other people's wars. but. Um, when we were preparing this, you told me about an interesting conversation you had with your commanding officer. Oh, yeah. Um, 
years later, I, I was I was part of a, an exchange program again. Like I got posted to the British Army, the first of the Queen's Dragoon Guards over in Senlaga, Germany, and um, you know we we had just we were just emerging from that post Vietnam cringe in the nineties, and um, you know there, there was this hurtful stuff that was going on in the eighties and nineties where you know the the army and and particularly the tanks were they they used to say oh you're just koalas you know and you're not to be exported or shot at you know and so there was this yeah we knew we were we were we were pretty skilled up and we had some good gear um, but there was sort of this sense that we would we were never going to be able to sh- prove ourselves you know and and. S- yeah, as a young soldier, you just want to you want to you want to get to use your skills, and and there was this sense that you know we were we were not going to because of the post Vietnam cringe, you know the um anyway the the CO at the first Queen's Dragoon Guards um he ended up being like in charge of the entire coalition forces or something um as a general Sir Simon Mayle. Um, he he said to me, he came, called me up to his office one day just to inter- you know, to let me to to see this exchange guy, and and he said, oh, I've worked with Australians before, and you guys are very professional, and you know, I felt quite flattered by that. And he said, you, it's just a shame you're not more involved in the world, and I and and I think he was right, you know. And it wasn't long after that that we started to get back involved in the world, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the period during the late Cold War and it, into the early nineteen nineties, we the Australian Army didn't really deploy much. It wasn't until you know we started we sent a, a battle group over to Somalia in nineteen ninety three, and then um, you know in the in the post Cold War shenanigans that went on, we 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 sort of signed up for everything, for better or worse. But um, yeah, that that posting to Germany. That was an eye opener for me because it, it validated everything that I'd been taught. You know, I knew that we were good, um, but I felt like for the first time in my career, I was, I was actually in the big league. You know, um, being part of that, um, that British regiment. You know, Challenger One regiment. How did you rate the uh, Leopard One versus the Challenger One? Yeah, I, I, I consider that I was, I was very lucky in my career that. I was able to serve on different types. You know, the the meat and potatoes of my tank service was on Leopard 1, on Leopard AS1, of course. You know, the vast majority of my time was on that tank. So forgive me if I've got a bit of a, you know, a... Uh, it's your first love, a, Tim. Yeah, You're always going to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, there's also the difference, I guess, when you think about it, that Challenger 1 was generationally ahead of leopard the leopard one that i served on so um you're kind of comparing apples and oranges in many ways but um i guess leopard one for me we had a very advanced model of leopard one when we bought it new in the 70s um so it it had all the options um if to put it in new car parlance it it was optioned up so um it was incredibly fast incredibly agile it, it, it was kind of like driving a sports car you know um and when i compare that to challenger 
you know, Challenger was more like a, I guess, like a four-wheel drive or a bus compared to a sports car. Automotively, it, it was slower to get up to speed, the Challenger. Um, it wasn't as fast. But that being said, it was, you know, another 20 tonnes heavier almost. So uh, what what it lacked in speed and agility, it certainly gained in crew survivability. That, that was one of the drawbacks of Leopard 1, I think, was it was created at a time when the, the gun versus armour race was, um, the Germans had come to the, the decision at that time that, no matter how much armour you put on a tank, gunpowder was always going to beat it. So they decided that speed and agility was going to be the armour of Leopard 1. So that was that first main battle tank sort of concept that, you know, hit the hit the ground running in, in the 60s. So by the time we got Leopard 1 in the 70s, the Leopard 1 was, you know, looking pretty well developed. So... It, it had, you know, four-speed forward transmission, two-speeds reverse, a theoretical top speed of 62 kilometres an hour. It could get there as quick as, a you know, any car on the street. In fact, I remember doing road runs on Leopard 1 and pulling out of traffic lights and cars would be kind of, you know, the dri- you could see the driver's faces. They'd be kind of dumbfounded that you were keeping up with them out of the lights. So... It was um, a very agile tank and manoeuvrable compared to Challenger 1. Le- Leopard 1 had a, a kind of a half wheel to, to, to steer it for the driver. Um, so you drove it very much like a car. The steering was infinitely variable through the first pressure on the wheel, whereas Challenger 1 was, was steered old school, like with tillers, with sticks. You know, Yeah, with the levers, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a different, a, a very different beast to drive. But I, I would suggest that automotively, Leopard 1 kind of left Challenger in the shade. Challenger was, um, although it had a theoretical, a theoretical, you know, horsepower much in excess of Leopard 1, it was still running dead track. I don't know if you've heard that term. Just steel pins like an old bulldozer kind of track whereas leopard one had live track it was rubber bushed so it didn't soak up the engine's horsepower just trying to drive this track around as much it saved a lot of horsepower the track assisted itself to get around and so although leopard one had a 830 brake horsepower it was only driving 42 and a half tons as opposed to challenger one with over a thousand i forget what how many horsepower up to 1500 horsepower i think it was driving the really ancient old tracks and all that extra tonnage of armor uh and and not as automotively reliable we could get an engine transmission we called it a power pack you could bring the leopard armored recovery vehicle in with its integral crane old old power pack out new power pack in 40 minutes and you're back you're back in the fight whereas you know i think challenger had a few challenges like that um now that being said if the cold war had have gone hot and i had the choice between challenger one and leopard one i strongly believe that 
I would have rather rather been on the two-way range with in Challenger 1 because just because of that crew survivability factor, it had that chobam armour, which was, you know, they, we, we felt like they were bulletproof completely. You know, they were, they were very survivable. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. This was this new ceramic armour that the uh, British had brought, had invented. Yeah, the, the, the British developed this, you know, I still don't know what's in it, but we understand that it's got different layers of metal with spacings in it and um, layers of ceramic, so it could defeat both kinetic energy and, and chemical energy rounds. I mean, it was heavy, clearly, because I think Chally, Chally won 68 tonnes or thereabout. Um, and with the added side skirt arm, I think it got up to over 70 tonnes, 72 tonnes or something. But, it, you know, I, I, I think I would have preferred to have surfed on Challenger, to be honest, if the Cold War had have got hot. Um, the Leopard was, was a generation behind it in survivability. Um, wet stored ammo. The Challenger has wet stored ammunition um, and three-part ammunition. So it had the projectile, the charge bag, and the what they called the vent tube, the like the detonator, all stored separately. So you're not going to have you know a catastrophic explosion if the armor is penetrated. Um, uh, whereas Leopard One, it was all just like a World War Two tank stored in a rack as a one-piece ammunition. And if that if that happens to catch fire, like we've seen imagery of what happens to those sort of vehicles in the Ukraine, they they just blow up. So I feel like the Challenger was a prob- well, definitely a harder hitting tank with its one hundred and twenty millimeter gun and more survivable. So I, I feel like I would have put up with that automotive basket case compared to the, the, the Porsche sports car, just because I know me and my crew would have probably come out of it alive. And would you, because you did some service on Leopard 2, so would you make similar comments in terms of the comparison between Challenger 1 and Leopard 2? Um, Leopard 2 was probably a little bit of a hybrid. Um, yeah, I did that I did that course with the, the German army, the Bundeswehr, and... Uh, Leopard 2 was, it was like Leopard 1 automotively. It was fast and agile, 1,500 horsepower, uh, but it had fixed up a few of the problems of, of Leopard 1 in that it had um, separately stowed ammunition with blow-off panels. So if the ammunition was hit, these blow-off panels would, would mean the crew would be um, isolated from the explosion. Um it had 
much stronger armour. I think I think Leo two was sixty eight tons in the form that I I was riding on it, um, but fast. You know, again, fast, probably faster than Leo one. They had used that fifteen hundred horsepower that they got out of the the even bigger power pack um, to great effect. So, uh, you know, again, if if I had a if I had the choice between Leopard two and Challenger one, then I probably would have gone for the for one of the later marks of Leopard two. But you know, I think when the Cold War was on, the later marks weren't available. They would have been up to the uh, A four version by the end of the Cold War, and so again, Challenger one would have had the edge of survivability. But certainly, it it hit just as hard as Challie one. Uh, Leopard 2 had the 120mm smooth bore, the Rheinmetall gun, which, you know, tanks like the Abrams, etc. cetera, they're, they're all running that same gun now, and we know how effective that is as a tank gun. But I think Chally 1 just kept that edge on survivability. The British, they've always put that, um, their focus on, on the armour protection. I, th- I think that's a good thing. Like when you when you're facing the Soviet hordes, punching across the North German plain and you're a relatively small force compared to them, you, you want to be able to survive. You want to be able to take a hit, a, a few hits from that, um, you know, those 125-millimetre guns that the P-72s were running. <laughs> there's another there's another facet to that which I didn't go into, but after the Iraq war, um, the British captured a number of intact um Type 69 2s, which were a Chinese copy of the Russian T 55. And the Australian and British governments did these, did these secret trials at the time on evaluating how effective these, these export Russian slash Chinese armored vehicles were. And the British did the gunnery trials on it, um, I think, thinking on the Salisbury Plain. So they fired these things and saw how accurate they were. Um, and we did the automotive trials and, you know, drove them until they broke, basically, and they put them through sensors and got the radar signatures and the thermal signatures and the seismic signatures. And I was actually the driver of a of a Chinese tank there for a little while wow. on this trial, and, and, mate, that thing was a pile of junk. You know, so if, if it had to come to a, a stand-up fight between you know, the T-55, T-62 series of um, Soviet tanks and Leopard 1 or Chieftain, i got to say we would have carved them up. We would have absolutely carved them up. They were a pile of junk. And it's incredible that they're wheeling these things out still in Ukraine. I know. They're just they're adding armour package to these things and they are just... I don't know what they're thinking. It's just a waste of good armour. You might as well just take the crews out and shoot them before they get to the Ukraine because that's you're doing the same thing effectively, you know. Yeah, yeah what a pile of junk. I'll tell you something else just quietly about that um, Type 69 trial that we did. All the um, the gun kit in it, they'd been retrofitted by the Iraqis with a laser rangefinder and some other, you know, gadgetry to sort of bring them into the 20th century, I think. And guess who supplied it? Vickers. <laughs> yeah. So the 
these British Chelly ones in in Iraq were firing at their Vickers gun kit, you know, their British gun kit at Chinese tanks that had been, <laughs> you know, supplied raided to to Vickers sighting. Yep, yep. I could not believe that they had American radios, the same that we were using in them, and um, and this. I'm looking at the laser range finder and the gun kit inside, and it's got you know proudly supplied by Vickers Vickers Armstrong or whoever it was. It was it was crazy, you know that that arms industry thing is just ugh, it's a vile thing, really. Yeah. We never learn. We never learn. No, we never do. No, you're right. You sent me a number of photos, and we'll, we'll be sharing um, these in in the episode notes. But when you you look at the photos, there doesn't seem to be any consistency around uniform. <laughs> I know we looked like pirates. I have to say, in the field, you know that uniform. You know, there's uniform regulations, but what what's actually enforced is completely different, and so. You know, during that late Cold War period, I've got another picture. I'll have to find it for you, but um, it shows a troop just posing for a photo on the back of a tank, and not two of us uh, have anything like identical uniforms on. I I remember we used to wear um, my personal, you know, day-to-day rig in the field was um, an Australian tank suit, which is, you know, jungle green, um, GP boots, which are, black boots, um, a green kepi cap, which we would just private privately purchase, like so, you know, kind of like the Rhodesian light infantry sort of style cap. And um, I had a mouse grey Bundeswehr parka, you know, with the big hood that would go over my combat vehicle crewman helmet and keep me nice and warm. And, yeah, so... That was my little hybrid outfit. Oh, and my pistol, my my personal weapon. I used to carry in a bright, bright burgundy shoulder holster right on the center of my chest that I'd just bought from a leather worker. And he said, "Oh, I've, I haven't got a black one or a green one. Would this red one do?" And I went, "Yes, it would." <laughs> so uh, that was my uh, personal. If you've got a photo, if you've got a photo of you in that outfit, we definitely want to oh, see. I'd that. love to. Yeah, I'd love to find one. Yeah, I missed that holster. I gave it away when I when I um, stopped using a pistol. I gave it to a younger digger, and and I, I wish I'd never had because it. You know, I know you ask about your favourite souvenir, and <laughs> that would have been one of mine. Keeping the bergen the bright red burgundy shoulder holster for my nine mil. Um, other guys, they would wear the old World War II tank oversuits, you know, um, that you could convert into a sleeping bag and they were kind of heavy canvas and they had this monstrous hood in them. But I tried that for a little while, but I, I soon gave it up because I kept on in the dark, you know, you'd go for, a, we called it a shovel recce, just like the British soldiers, you'd go for a, for a crap in the field. I know you love talking about bodily functions in the field. We love this sort of detail, Tim. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's the minutiae, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember crapping in the hood more than once of a tank oversuit, <laughs> and I thought, no, nah, never again. Yeah, that, so it got relegated to the, to the skip. And um, other guys, you know, they would wear those, you know, the, like a bush ranger. <laughs> they're called a dryer's a bone over here. You know, they're um, an oil skin raincoat, like Ned Kelly, the bush ranger, used to wore, wear, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
the outlaw look. And so, and, and at night we would just wear balaclavas and beanies and it was just ridiculous. Like, seriously, we, we just looked like a bunch of pirates. But um, you just did what you had to do. You know, we had these, um, for a while we had those American, we called them bush jackets, but they're the American M65 uh, cold weather coats and they were they were excellent. You know, and if you could scrounge up the padded liner for them, oh, you'd stay warm. You know, they were they were a great bit of gear. Yeah, um, but yeah, guys just they lived for comfort. You know, we we talked about these extended exercises, which are sort of probably beyond comprehension to any anybody that had served in Europe. But what were you doing for for food and and rations? Yeah, okay. Um, we we used to eat um, our resupply system up with you know coming up with the fuel and the ammo and. And all that other stuff would, we would get the um, a combat ration ten man, which was two slides of uh, just cans, yeah, um, vegetables, and that you know we had various sorts of delights, such as I remember, I remember one was called meat type one, and there was another one, imaginatively known as meat type two. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, a pork and cereal with no—I could never detect any cereal in the pork and cereal, but it was kind of like a dodgy version of spam, um, you know. You, but you'd have little tins of uh, tropicalized butter that wouldn't melt, even even if it was on fire, it wouldn't melt. Um, you know, condensed milk. You know, uh, you had enough stuff to 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 eat pretty well out of those those ration packs but we we would always supplement them like all soldiers all over the world we we would have we'd buy what we call jack rations so before you went to the field your tank would literally look like a delicatessen inside you know we would have salamis hanging off the the loader's wall and you know strings of onions and you know we but we would eat eat um as a mainstay, they, they would always try to keep fresh sliced bread up to us because the Australian um, tank crewman lives on what we call jaffles. I don't know if you have them over there. They're um, like a toasted sandwich in a sandwich press. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we, we would have a jaffle iron, which is like a cast iron mould for those toasted sandwiches. And so you would, you would put a bit of meat type one and some Tabasco sauce from your jack rations and and, and some eggs, eggs were always, you know, we would take a lot of eggs with us and um, you would fry them up and, and have this sort of almost cafe-style breakfast, you know, cooked on a on a single burner gas bottle inside, often resting on the white phosphorus ammunition or the hash rounds inside the tank while you're cooking. Yeah, and, and of course you lived on coffee. You know, we I picked up a coffee habit in the Army, which is, Never, never waned. You know, I, I can drink 10, 15 cups of coffee a day even now, which has got to be good for you, right? Well, it's certainly keeping yeah. me very perky this evening in uh, Australia. <laughs> so, uh, it's working well today. Yeah. But, that, that, you know, the food the food was, was more than adequate, I guess, the the issue stuff. But, yeah, we did we did supplement it. Like, I, I used to love um, hearing stories. Uh, the British guys, particularly, you know, they'd have the the bratwurst van, yeah, yeah, following them around the exercise. Yeah. I just dreamed of having a bratty van turn up, <laughs> but never happened. But I remember once on that Kangaroo eighty nine, we were at a roadblock in the middle of nowhere, in you know the top end of Australia, and these 
drunken idiots pulled up in a in a car. You know, they 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 were on their way to a party or something, and they saw this tank parked up on the side of the road. These um civilian guys on holiday, and they they gave us. A, they said, "Oh, you must be hungry. Here, have have an esky full of pies, and um, you know those meat pies." Yeah. Um, and so we had we ate meat pies as supplementary rations for a couple of days, and they gave us slabs of beer, and then they just waved us goodbye and drove off into the night. It was fantastic, you know. Wow. Uh, those little encounters, you know, with with uh, the local population, just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, um, Wolfgang. Wolfgang. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, Wolfgang. That the, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, we yeah, dreamed e- about even that. Even he would have had a challenge finding you in an area the size of Western Europe, I think. Yeah, true. Although, let me just say, we, we used to have this guy, um, we called him Milo Bill, and he was a Salvation Army representative. And in the Australian Army, I don't know, don't know if they have that in the, in the UK or US forces, but... The Salvation Army attaches a guy to each major regiment and they sort of go where the regiment goes. And this guy, Milo Bill, he was he would be in this beat-up old Series 2A Land Rover and he'd have his urns of Milo and uh, uh, like a chocolate drink, you know, like Ovaltine. Right. Um, he would have urns of hot Milo and um, uh, cordial, you know, like... Um, Kool-Aid, I guess the Americans yeah. call it. Um, and and he would turn up at places you go, how the hell did you find us? And how did you get that thing here? You know, he, he was just, I guess he had that radar for finding guys. And so I remember he would turn up and, he, you know, he's a Salvation Army dude. And he'd always ask, have you written home to your, to your loved ones today? And, he, and if you hadn't, he would thrust some writing paper in your hand and, and you would have some he would give you some lollies and a you know, if it was hot, you'd you'd walk away with a foam cup of cordial or if it was cold, a hot cup of Milo, you know? And yeah, so he was he was I guess he was the closest thing we had to a wolfgang, but I would have preferred a wolfgang to be honest. <laughs> Maybe they're distantly related. You never know. You never <laughs> yeah, know. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that we haven't covered that I did want to ask you about the the Leopard AS1 was night fighting capability. Yep. Um, w- when when they got it in nineteen seventy seven, it yeah, it was it was probably one of the best leopards in the world. I would think. You know, at the time we bought it with, yeah. You know, uh, the Belgian Sabka TFCS tank fire control system. So it was all computer. You know, we had a ballistic computer, uh, wind sensors, temperature grain sensors, tank angle sensor. It, yeah, it had a sensor array second to none in the world. Um, but it still had that standard German for the time infrared night sight with a infrared slash white light spotlight uh, searchlight. And it never got upgraded in Australian service. So, uh, you know, it didn't stop us from training to operate them in the dark. And it probably would have been okay against an insurgency, but on a conventional battlefield, we would have just been a target not long after it was, you know, everyone else was going passive and later thermal. We were still operating with IR. So as a night fighting, as a piece of night fighting equipment, it was very much obsolete by the, even by the time I 
I um, started operating Leopard. Um, we used to we used to train to use indirect illumination from our reconnaissance troop fire and the Carl Gustav illumination rounds, which were excellent. So you'd, they'd turn a night battlefield into a day battlefield. Um, we'd we'd ripple ripple with the searchlights um, on IR, but you know you're supposed to ha- you were supposed to have had a notional range using the infrared searchlight and night sight of 1200 meters but no way that that was that was just a bit of pr spin i have to say that you would be lucky if you could see 400 meters at night using infrared so so we you know practically didn't use it we we went to a white light and rippled with white light which again if you're operating against infantry is probably fine it had our white light searchlight had a had a range of 1500 and it it was excellent so um but on a conventional battlefield, forget it. You just would have been a target. Um, they, that's one thing that really let Australia down, I think, was never upgrading them to a passive system or a thermal system. Um, so so dry, I mean, driving at night then in one of these, particularly the terrain that you're describing, uh, must have been quite hazardous, particularly if you're trying to go at speed still. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I first started, there were there were no night night vision aids. Um, there was uh, there was a thing called the BM eight double oh five, which was a driver's periscope. Um, and, and the first generation of those that we got, they weren't very good at all. Um, you know, you'd sort of say, "Is that a road or is it a bottomless creek?" You know, you just couldn't really tell. It was that grainy green and black night vision image that you sometimes see on YouTube videos. Um, and But mostly it was driving using what we call the Mark I eyeball, just not, you know, your your eyes. And and it was bloody deadly, to be honest. Um, we, we actually lost a couple of guys in the regiment in the most horrific circumstances operating at night. You know, the first one, um, Sergeant Murray, he, he was killed in a, in a rollover, a tank was travelling at speed at night using Mark One eyeball, and there was a excavation on the side of the road. Tank dropped one track into it, and and it was flipped on its roof before anyone realised, and he was he was killed instantly. And and there's another another soldier again, just horrific. He was doing a um, that that tank was doing a, a creek crossing at night in a in a pretty flooded creek, and um, the tank hit an, a submerged obstacle and flipped on its roof, and and Trooper Patterson, he was killed, trapped under the tank in the in the dark. Um, yeah, not a not a great thing. And so the, those two fatalities, they left their DNA in the regiment for years and years and years, and and pr- it's probably still lingering with Australian tank crewmen. We, it, it it was pretty. Um, they, they were they were pretty nasty incidents, and you know, I guess lest we forget those two guys because they they paid you know they're, they're casualties of the Cold War as much as if if it had gone hot. Um, so after those incidents, we started getting um, one per tank of this thing called the PVS fives, which were night vision binoculars, and usually the commanders operated them in order to help help the drivers um 
they were pretty good for their for their time. They were, I think, first uh, second generation image intensifying binoculars. But again, you just couldn't see depth with them. And I, I, all of us can tell stories of close encounters. You know, the amount of times that I've hit things or, you know, um, thought a road was was there, but it was actually a hole. Using using the night vision aids, you know, I've had a, so many close calls myself, and and everyone can tell the same stories that operated the armored vehicles at that time. Yeah, night fighting was bad. It was really bad, and of course we trained we trained how we fought, we were going to fight with those things. So there was you know you didn't just turn the headlights on and and pretend it wasn't night. We we trained hard, and you know some of us paid the price, I guess. And uh, I always think that there are well obviously not within the uh, Australian tank regiment these these guys aren't forgotten but i think generally because people believe that the cold war wasn't a hot war that uh, there there weren't casualties and certainly with exercises it must be in the thousands if you look across all nations yeah, I, that I, are involved absolutely. in exercises yeah. even tens of thousands potentially mm. um there so um yeah absolutely right to uh remember those those guys okay just want to talk about some of the you know the tactics you were were using i mean you mentioned about the the speed of the the leopard being used with its advantage but how would you be attacking a a position what was the uh the general tactics there during the late cold war we um you know, we we would op- often operate the tanks as part of a mechanised um, combat team, and so we would have um, mechanised infantry attached to us, mounted in their M113 A1s from our sister infantry unit, Fifth Seventh Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, and um, so one one example of of an attack would be uh, you would have a troop of tanks off to a flank, um, pinning the enemy and providing that uh, what we called attack by fire. Um, so you would you would just be blasting the objective at long range with with hesh from the tanks, or screening it with smoke to blind them um, from our white foss ammo. And then there'd be other tasks. So you would have uh, the intimate support troop to go in with the infantry. And provide that intimate support at close range. Another interesting task at that time was they called it shock assault, where it, um, tanks would just drive straight past the objective, shooting at it on the way past, and just making that objective feel completely worthless as a as a defensive position because you would use the speed of the leopard to just roll past it, and then take up a position you know another tactical bound forward of it and then and then um wait for the infantry to finish finish on that objective so that shock assault was it was a particularly australian way of operating i think it was probably high risk in a conventional battlefield but it it used the speed and mobility and agility of leopard to its best advantage you know particularly in open terrain it was pretty awesome to behold you know where these tanks would just roll past with absolute impunity, and the objective was neutralised anyway because of the attack by fire and the intimate support fire coming in. 
and then the infantry just debossing out of the M113s and owning that objective. So, you know, if you could mass your, you could mass your armour enough, that was a pretty effective tactic, yeah. That was one of the the, the um, training scenarios we, we did a lot, a lot. Yeah, that, that sort of shock assault, quick attack off the line of march stuff. On these exercises, you would have been practising encrypted communications, but were there particular concerns about signals intelligence and the Soviets picking up anything? Or the Manzurian, sorry, the Manzurian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's not say the Soviets. Although I think in that in that case that it was the Soviets. You know, there was always the – particularly when we went up to places like Shoalwater Bay, which, which is on the coast up in – Queensland there in central Queensland um, always always as part of your pre-exercise briefs that the the legendary Soviet trawlers were were parked offshore monitoring our comms you know and to always keep your your radios on the lowest possible power setting and you know don't maintain strict radio procedure etc etc but you know, I, I know in more recent times that there's been Chinese trawlers monitoring some of our big exercises. That they've actually got footage of them, but I don't know if we ever saw a, you know, footage of a, a Russian trawler. But that was always the urban myth, I guess, like some of those urban myths that came out of out of tank troops operating in Germany. You know, they. They would be able to identify individual commanders by the way they speak or operate on the radio and all that sort of stuff, but I don't know how true that was. Um, we used we used operational codes um, all the time, and that was that was the loader's loader's job to cack up, you know, um, grids and times, etc., and and then decack them when you came in on the radio. But it was you know, they were, like I say, they were operational codes. They weren't Bletchley Park stuff. They were just for short-term information. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. You were instructed to sort of transmit on the lowest possible power setting. Yeah, I remember yeah, that was always the word. We had low power and high power. But particularly up in Queensland, you know, where you got, you know, you're talking about VHF communications and and line of sight and like, you know, I, was, I guess I was a bit of a naughty boy as a young tank commander. I used to crank it up at maximum power because I always wanted to be heard. <laughs> so I think I was probably a, uh, a security risk maybe. But, yeah, I used to crank up my, my radio on the maximum power. Yeah. It's probably a big file on you, Tim, somewhere. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. But anyway. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, you, you were talking about some of the uh, exchanges that you had with, uh, like, the British Army and um, uh, the, the, the US Army, but I think you, you went on an exchange to uh, the Bundeswehr. Now, this was post-Cold War, um, but you met an interesting person there. Yeah, it was it was post Cold War. I got posted to the British Army, and then I, I was able to wangle myself a, a a sort of a separate attachment to the Bundeswehr. I wanted to, you know, because we were still operating Leopard One when I was when I was um, posted overseas, and and so I wanted to go and qualify on Leopard Two. I wanted to sort of collect tank qualifications while I was over there. So I challenged, you know, I qualified on Challenger One, and then while I was there, I. I said, I, w- I want to go and qualify on Leopard 2. And, you know, to my surprise, I was able to. So I got told to report to um, Rommel Caserna in Augustdorf, you know, which is a Bundeswehr barracks, and it was um, their Panzerfahrschule there. And, um, yeah, great, great memories of that of that uh, that little course that I did. The got told to report to uh, Hauptmann Steinzig, it's funny. I remember all the names, and and so turned up at the guard room, and this German conscript clicked his heels at me and saluted, and I thought, how cool is that? They actually clicked their heels, you know, and um, yeah. So Hauptmann Steinzig uh, turns up in a Gelandewagen and takes me, and he said, "So you are the Australian Panzer expert, uh, and you are here to qualify on the Leopard two and." You will do that, but first we have coffee, and so that was the start of a, a you know a great relationship I had with those Bundeswehr guys. They were real pros, you know. Um, just sitting in the CO's office there, drinking coffee, and he said, "You must meet der Spice," you know. Uh, and I thought, "What the hell is a Spice?" You know. And, uh, so I'm looking up at the ceiling, wondering if. The spice is a, I don't know, what is a spice? And um, anyway, this this old, you know, I guess the equivalent of an RSM walks in and, you know, big smile on his face. Looked like he'd fought in World War II, this fella, wearing that fantastic German camouflage uniform and um, their little Africa Corps style caps. And anyway, shook my hand and, you know, just a nice, nice bunch of guys, real professionals, and so took me over to my crew um, on on a Leopard two, and uh, introduced me to those guys. And it was a they'd specially picked a crew that you know my German was sort of okay, I guess you know for ordering beer and abusing taxi drivers, but not not enough for the technical language of a tank course. So they put me in a crew of excellent English speakers and so we had this sort of a Creole language in our crew which was great and one of the guys on the crew was a an ex-NVA um, senior NCO who'd been on T-72s before the wall came down and uh, Peter his name was and, and a real warrior like a hard hard guy you know like tough tank soldier and Instant respect for that guy, um, and we became firm friends pretty quick, pretty quickly. And um, he he would sort of 
nudge me in the side sometimes and he would point at his fellow German tank crewmen that were from the Vess, the, the, the Vessies, as he called them, and, and he'd say, look how soft they are, you know. And, you know, he goes, what did he say? He said something like, um, if if the Cold War had have ever gone hot, we would have gone through them like shit through a goose or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it was – I. Th- I thought that was such a cool thing to say. He was, he was very confident in in the ability of the the old National Volks Army, and I, I really rated him. He was a good soldier. Yeah, he gave gave me a um, at the end of that that trip, he gave me um, an AK bayonet, you know, an AK forty seven bayonet, and it's it's one of my one of my little personal treasures that bayonet, you know, because I remember him fondly, you know. That's my little. East German army encounter, and he—he, he, he, I remember he was quite jaded, and he was very, very jaded that they'd they'd come out of it second best when the wall came down and unification, you know, unification happened. He felt they'd they'd been ripped off. He he was quite a senior tank soldier, and he had to virtually start again. But you know, like he was a pro, like a proper tank soldier. I liked him, yeah. There was also, they had a little, little choice is what I gathered from him that, you know, he could be unemployed or he could flick over to the Bundeswehr and start from scratch. And so he chose to start from scratch. But, you know, he was a Stabsfeld Vable by the time I met him. You know, so he'd, he'd, earned, he'd gone back up. So, but he, he was quite jaded, you know. Um, you mentioned the AK bayonet. Have you got any other souvenirs from your Cold War experiences? <laughs> yeah, my favourite, my favourite souvenir of my Cold War tank journey is, uh, and and I'll, I'll send you a photo that I've got the secondary side out of a Leopard AS one, and it's and it hangs above my back deck, above my barbecue, so it's my. You know, at, at one time that would have been worth so many thousands of dollars. But when the Leopards were getting, you know, they were out of service, replaced by the M1A1, and um, they were getting dragged out to the range to be shot at as targets. And, you know, some of the guys stripped out some of the parts for souvenirs, and I was lucky enough to pick up a secondary site. So, it's a, you know, it's a couple of metres long, and it hangs from a chain over my barbecue on my back deck, and I look up at it and smile. Think of my misspent youth. And we're, we'll definitely be sharing a photo of that in the episode notes, along with various other interesting photos that um, Tim's shared with me. Hi there. I'm delighted to announce that Cold War Conversations will be reaching new audiences via the Into History Podcast Network. It's a brand new subscription channel of podcasts made by history lovers for history lovers. Now, Cold War Conversations can still be found in all the usual places for free, so there's no change there. But if you want to enjoy the perks of being an Into History subscriber, go to intohistory.com slash coldwarpod or click on the link in my show notes. You'll get access to hundreds of ad-free episodes from outstanding history podcasts plus exclusive curated feeds around a topic. 
plus a book club, a newsletter and a community hub to keep the conversation going. Just go to intohistory.com slash coldwarpod. That's intohistory.com slash coldwarpod. Is there any favourite film you've got? A Cold War themed film or anything you think is is close to representing what some of your experiences were like? Not really. Um, there's there's an Australian film based on the Vietnam War, which some people might look. It's not my experience, but it's uh, definitely um, worth a look. Um, you know, if you want to have a look at Australia's Cold War contribution, probably have a look at a film called Danger Close, which is uh, about an Australian infantry company that were were uh, lured into a rubber plantation in Vietnam and and fought for their lives, you know. Um, and it's 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 not a bad um, movie when it comes to accuracy, and it shows the M one one threes. The M one one threes came to the rescue of the infantry that that night, and you know the infantry had lost seventeen dead, killed about two hundred and forty five North Vietnamese soldiers. In the, in the dark and and that that film's definitely worth a look if you want to have a look at what Australia was doing during the Cold War I guess mm. okay no that's great I'll uh, add that to the episode notes as well so people can uh, take take a look at that I just want to want to thank you and and all the listeners it, it, this is a great podcast Ian, and and you know I, I do feel like a bit of an imposter um, a bit of a second rower in the in rugby parlance but you know, I'm so so glad that you you thought thought me worthy of coming on. I, I look, I worked with so many great guys from so many armies, and and uh, the Cold War was a proper war, and I, I just um, feel privileged to have served with some of those amazing tank crewmen. And Tim, you're not an imposter at all. Everybody's story is a is a different angle or a, a a different view of things and it's been fascinating talking to you until you got in contact with me i'd not actually thought well hang on what were the australians doing don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information